0: We allegedly have a debt deal, but as usual, the devil's in the details. I'm Graham Summers, and this is Bulls, Bears, and BS. Welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and BS. I'm Graham Summers, and today is Wednesday, May 31st, 2023. The biggest development we have, although there's quite a few developments to cover, the biggest one is that allegedly there is a debt deal in place between the GOP and the Biden White House. Now, as I noted before, and as I wrote in my best-selling book, The Everything Bubble, there's one basic thing we need to know about Washington, and that's that politicians promise And then the bond markets deliver. And what I mean by this is that if you look at our political system from sort of a 20,000 foot view, the overall trend is as follows Politician A makes some basic promise to fix some basic problem that involves spending money. Politician A doesn't actually have any money and doesn't spend his or her own money. Politician A spends our money in the form of tax revenue. And if tax revenue is not adequate to cover the spending, then the U.S. government issues debt to finance the spending. That's essentially everything that's been done in this country politically since the 70s, at the very least. And that's what's going on here again. The debt deal is a farce to begin with. First and foremost, there's no spending cuts this year. The spending cuts next year are a mere 0.2% of GDP, which again is basically negligible. And then there's no spending caps and there's no debt limit until 2025, which, of course, is after the 2024 presidential election and the 2024 congressional election. So essentially, once again, politicians kick the can down the road. They're not going to make any legitimate decision on capping the amount of spending that's being done until the next political cycle. Now, there's one other component here, which is pretty amazing. And uh, I have to give a hat tip to Bill King for catching this. But ultimately, the Office of Management and Budget Director has been given sole waiver authority to spend if it's deemed necessary for program delivery. This was actually noted by Representative Nancy Mace on Twitter yesterday. But the gist of it is this, is that this debt deal is really not a debt deal in the slightest in the sense that all these negotiations, all this alleged you know, back and forth on whether or not to cut spending and how much cuts are going to be implemented, all have been wiped out by a single line, which states that ultimately the Office of Management Budget Director, who was appointed by President Biden, has the sole waiver authority to spend as deemed necessary to deliver various programs. So essentially, whatever programs they implement, if it's deemed necessary to spend a certain amount of money to make sure that program's delivered, then they can go ahead and do it. So if you think there's going to be any kind of decline or drop in spending going forward, you're mistaken. And the implications of this are actually quite significant. First and foremost, it means that there's going to be a lot of debt issued by the U.S. in the coming months and years. As we've noted previously, starting with COVID-19, the U.S. has been running emergency-level deficits. A deficit is when the government takes in less money than it needs and consequently has to go to the debt markets to finance things. This hits a peak of $3 trillion in 2020, but it's still well over $1.2 trillion. And based on this current deal, there's really no cap to anything. They could run it back up to $2 trillion if they wanted to. The second component to that is that the U.S. already has $31 trillion in debt. And who knows how high this is going to go before 2025. Now, everyone's been talking about, oh, our children's future and we need to cut back on spending. And I'm totally on in that camp. I think that the way the government spends money is ridiculous. But the real arbiter of whether or not that's going to be a problem is the bond market. The backdrop that has permitted the United States to rack up this massive debt mountain in the first place is the bond market. And from 1982 to 2022, the bond market was in a large secular bull market, meaning that over that time, the general trend was bond prices went up and bond yields went down. And what that means is that throughout that time period, in the big picture, it became ever increasingly cheaper for the United States to issue debt. And consequently, they did. And so did everyone else, from corporations to individuals. Although I should clarify, individuals don't issue debt, they take on debt, but you get the general idea. So what does this have to do with this spending deal? Well, the bull market in bonds, as we've noted before, ended in 2022. And what this means is that overall, yields on bonds are now much higher than they've been for quite some time. Now, if you look at a chart of, say, the yield on the two-year U.S. Treasury, you'll see that the yield is now where it was in 2007. And you might say, oh, well, big deal. It's just back to where it was then. But it is a big deal because in 2007, the U.S. had less than $10 trillion in debt, and currently it has $31 trillion in debt. You could do something similar with the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury or the yield on the 30-year U.S. Treasury and so on and so forth. So the gist of what I'm saying is these yields have now gone up quite a bit because of inflation arriving in the financial system. And that's a big issue because what that means is that it's now a lot more expensive for the U.S. to issue debt. Consider that if the U.S. issued short-term debt, say something shorter than one year, any time in the last two or three years, it probably paid less than 0.5% on that debt. Well, it's now paying 5%. So we're talking about a massive increase in the cost of funding the debt. So what, someone might say, the U.S. issued all this debt, you know, years ago, and it, that doesn't matter. You know, the debt's locked in at certain yields. That is correct in a sense. But a lot of the U.S.'s funding is actually short-term in nature. I believe something like 40% of our total debt comes due in the next five years. So as debt comes due, the U.S. has an issue. It either has to issue new debt and sort of roll over the old debt into the new debt, meaning it doesn't pay the lender back but simply rolls him or her into a new treasury bill or T-bill at a new rate, or the U.S. has to issue completely new debt to completely new investors. Regardless, that new debt is going to be issued at a much, much higher yield than it has been at any point in the last five to 10 years, depending on the yield maturity, which made me realize I should probably clarify what I mean by treasuries. When people talk about treasuries, they're not talking about just a bond. What they're actually talking about is an entire bond market, and I believe there's 12 different issuances there. They range from four weeks up to 30 years. The short-term ones are called T-bills. These are ones that are having a maturation or a duration of shorter than 52 weeks or one year. Then you have T-notes or treasury notes. Those are the ones that are mid to long-term. They're three, five, seven, and 10 years in duration. And then you have treasury bonds, which are the ones that are 20 and 30 years in duration. So you're actually talking about 12 different types of bonds, all of which are issued for different lengths of time. And and when you plot the yields on all of these different treasury bills or treasury notes or treasury bonds, you have what's called the yield curve. So ultimately, to get back to the original point, much of the U.S.'s funding needs are financed in the very short term or T-bill or T-note markets, meaning these are bonds that are issued for shorter than one year or less. Of course, there's issuances for up to 30 years, but the bulk of the funding comes from very short-term T-bills, or bonds that are issued for 52 weeks or less. And the U.S. is perpetually kind of rolling this stuff over, and as I just noted, this stuff is now yielding much higher yields, which means it's going to cost an awful lot more money for the U.S. to finance it. There's a second component here which is that all of this money issuance that we're talking about, the spending, the fact that the spending bill doesn't actually have a spending cap until January of 2025, means that this is going to be highly inflationary. There's a big reason why, despite the Federal Reserve, which is our central bank, raising interest rates so aggressively that inflation has not disappeared. There's actually a bunch of reasons for that, but one of them is the government continues to spend so much money. A case in point would be the Federal Reserve has drained something like $500 billion from the financial system via its quantitative tightening program. Now, what this consists of is that the US Federal Reserve has been buying all these bonds over the last few years due to these emergency measures it introduced during COVID. So it now owns all this stuff, but those bonds come due just like any other bonds. And so when that happens, the Fed simply gets the money back, and then gives it to the Treasury. And this is how it drains liquidity from the system or drains uh, excess funds, let's say. But on the flip side of this is the Treasury, which has actually actually pumped $800 billion into the financial system in the last year or so. So the Treasury's totally negated what the Fed's done. And that's a big reason why we continue to see so much froth in the financial system. But you can apply this same concept in a bigger scale to what the federal government has done besides just the Treasury. The government has continued emergency-level spending that was first introduced during COVID, and it's currently running a $1.25 trillion deficit. All of that money is going into the financial system and the economy in different ways, and consequently, inflation is having a very difficult time being destroyed by the Fed's monetary tightening. To put it very simply, the, the Federal Reserve and the White House are actually at odds with one another in this sense because the Fed's trying to get rid of inflation while the White House is trying to pump the system and the economy full of as much spending power as possible. And so this debt deal, which potentially opens the door to another $6 trillion in spending before 2025, is going to be highly inflationary. It's basically sending a signal to the world That the emergency levels of spending that were introduced during COVID are now being normalized. And that is why the yields on the Treasury bonds, Treasury notes, and Treasury bills we've been talking about have all reversed and started going up again. The big picture for the financial system since October of 2022 has been that the yields on Treasury stopped rising because the bond market believed that the Federal Reserve was going to do enough. To end inflation. And since that time, these yields have essentially been consolidating. This has provided stability to the bond market. And that is a big reason why stocks essentially bottomed in October of last year and have been overall chopping back and forth and now look to be breaking out to the upside a little bit. Put very simply, and let's do this in the broadest strokes possible, we had a massive multi decade bull market in bonds from 1982 to 2022. That allowed the government to rack up an obscene amount of debt without getting itself into trouble. That bull market in bonds ended in 2022 when inflation entered the financial system. And since that time, treasury yields have risen considerably for two reasons, one due to inflation and one because the Federal Reserve Has started raising interest rates to try to end inflation. But against that backdrop, the government is completely negating what the Fed's doing because it's still printing money and, excuse me, it's still spending money like a drunken sailor. And from an investor's perspective, this is very problematic because, as I mentioned earlier, and as I've mentioned many times before on this podcast, the yield on treasuries represents the risk free rate of return against which all risk assets are priced. And so this is a big reason why stocks sold off in 2022, because these yields were rising, which meant investors were willing to pay much less on a forward multiple of earnings for stocks. In the simplest of terms, during COVID, when treasury yields were, it, were offering almost nothing in terms of return, investors were willing to pay 20 to 22 times forward earnings for stocks. Once yields started to rise rapidly, this changed to 16 to 18 times forward earnings. But again, the key item here is that bond yields stopped rising in October of 2022, and that allowed stability to enter the financial system. And that's why we've seen stocks refusing to fall further. What does this all have to do with the spending bill? Well, we'll have to wait and see because as I mentioned before, the spending deal potentially opens the door to $6 trillion in additional spending. If that proves to be as inflationary as I think it does, then we're going to see treasury yields start rising again rapidly, and that could ultimately put a lot of pressure on the stock market. The other item to consider regarding the bond market is not just the inflationary impact having uh, an effect on yields rising, But the fact is that to finance all this stuff, the United States is going to have to issue a lot more debt. And that, too, will put pressure on bonds because, you know, basic economics, supply plus demand equals price. Well, if there's a lot of supply coming to the market and the demand's not necessarily there or definitely not there at current yields, then you're going to see bonds sell off again. So there's a lot going on here. But the most important thing we need to just keep in mind is that the most important asset class in the world is bonds. Bonds have stabilized from October of 2022 until currently, based on this idea that the Fed's got inflation under control. The government now appears to be announcing that it's going to continue its spending spree. That's putting pressure on bonds again. And if that is, in fact, going to happen, then the U.S. is going to have to issue a lot more debt. Again, that's more pressure on bonds. And inflation is going to remain very sticky, more pressure on bonds. Another component to this mess is now the Federal Reserve. As I mentioned earlier, the Fed and the White House are now going against each other. The White House is embarking on, or at least attempting to continue, its spending spree while the Fed's trying to tamper down inflation. If this spending bill goes through, it means that the Fed likely is going to have to be more aggressive with rate hikes. Now, going into this situation about the debt ceiling, the narrative was that the Fed had essentially raised rates to roughly where they were supposed to be, 5%, and that the Fed was going to essentially pause here and kind of just monitor things or be data dependent. However, since this whole debt ceiling fiasco started, the odds of the Fed having to raise rates in June has dropped has jumped quite a bit, and we're also starting to see the potential for the Fed having to raise rates again in July. What this means is potentially the terminal rate going to 5.5%. And of course, if the government does indeed spend another $6 trillion in the next two years, it wouldn't be surprising to see the Fed having to raise rates to 6%. What does that do? Well, remember, the risk-free rate of return concerns yields on treasuries, and the Fed's now raising rates to try to catch up to treasuries. This is all telling us that the, quote, cost of money in the financial system is likely going to be higher. And also there's the expression higher for longer, meaning the Fed's going to have to raise rates higher than people expect, and it's then going to have to keep them there for a prolonged period. So this idea that the Fed might be able to just raise rates to a certain level and then pause or raise rates to a certain level and then suddenly start cutting again, that's gone. That's completely gone. Instead, what it now looks like, and this is especially true if this spending deal goes through is that the Fed's going to have to raise rates more, and those rates are going to have to stay at elevated levels for a prolonged period. That's a pretty big deal because it changes the entire game plan for the financial system. Anyone betting on this idea that there's going to be a rapid shift in Fed policy and the Fed suddenly starts cutting again, well, that's no longer going to be possible. So this is, again, another component. As you can see, this is a bit of a difficult podcast to do. There's a lot of moving parts here, and this is all very fluid and dynamic. Now, this brings us to stocks. What exactly is going on in the stock market? Because, as you know, I've been quite bearish for some time, and I've been talking about the risks to the downside, and yet the stock market absolutely refuses to break down. Every dip is getting bought. And it looks as though, if anything, the 200 day moving average for many of the indices is turning up, which means the intermediate term, excuse me, intermediate term trend is now going to be upwards. What's going on right now is that a small number of stocks in just a smaller number of sectors is essentially propping up the entire market. The number of stocks is about seven or eight, and it's the big tech plays Nvidia, Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, Meta. Those ones, they are essentially masking a lot of deterioration that is occurring elsewhere in the market. There are eight sectors. So altogether, I believe there's 10 sectors in the S&P 500. Eight of them are actually currently trading at multi-quarter lows. That means they're trading at levels that they haven't been to in at least three months, if not six months or nine months. The ones that are doing this are things like consumer staples, energy, consumer discretionary, healthcare, real estate, utilities, materials and industrials. All of those are performing quite badly, but they're being masked by information technology, which is essentially tech, and by communication services, which again is tech. So, the reason this is all happening is as I've mentioned before, the S&P 500 is very heavily weighted towards tech. Tech is the largest sector in the market in terms of weighting. It's about 28%. It's actually larger than the second and third largest sector by weights combined. So tech is essentially eclipsing all this deterioration that's occurring underneath the surface of the market. And in fact, I think I saw yesterday the number of stocks hitting new lows while the S&P 500 at new highs is at its biggest divergence since the tech bubble in 2000. So we're seeing a lot of deterioration. And in fact, the bulk of the market, something like 480 plus stocks, are actually not doing that well. But a small number of them, which happen to also be the largest stocks on the market and the most heavily weighted stocks on the market, are masking this because they're doing so well. And the reason they're doing so well is because of the artificial intelligence or AI bubble which is this new kind of growth industry that everyone's obsessing about. It's not really clear what this is going to do in terms of economic growth. It's not really clear what this is even going to do in terms of profits. What is clear is that this AI is in a bubble, and bubbles can last much longer and go much further than anyone anticipates. See NVIDIA. Nvidia stock was already up over 100% year to date based on the hype and hope of the AI bubble before it reported its first quarter results. But the first quarter results were actually not even that great. True, the company did 7.19 billion which was in revenues, which was up 19% from the previous quarter, but year over year revenues were down 13%. So the company's actually not growing like everyone thinks. But the stock exploded almost 30% to the upside because the company announced an upgrade to its second quarter revenue outlook, outlook from $7 billion to $11 billion. Now, this is a massive increase in outlook. It's a, almost a 64% increase, and that's why the stock exploded to the upside. Everyone sees it as a massive growth stock. However, on an annualized basis, $11 billion per quarter comes to $44 billion a year, and the company's trading at a trillion dollars in market cap. So this is an absurdly expensive company. This is actually a very dangerous situation because first and foremost, bubbles are irrational and they always burst. So if the only thing that's really holding up your stock market is a bubble in a particular sector, that's quite dangerous. The other thing that's dangerous is when people are buying stocks against economic deterioration Based on the hope that the Fed's going to have to start cutting rates and easing monetary conditions. If that were actually to happen here, meaning the Fed suddenly announces, say today, that it's going to start easing monetary conditions, well, inflation's still at 5% according to the official data points. What would it do to inflation if the Fed suddenly abandons its monetary tightening? So I don't mean to be sort of so negative all the time on stocks. The point is, there are very real risks here. Don't get me wrong, I have clients who are trading this to the long side, but we are not heavily invested. We've been in mostly cash since April of 2022, and we shifted to mostly short-term T-bills in March of this year. So we are playing this to the upside. We've got some AI plays, we've got some growth plays, but we're not heavily invested. We're not putting massive amounts of capital to work here because of all these risks. So let's do a little roundup here the debt deal is not concluded. There's a proposed deal that's on the table. If that deal is signed off on by the Republicans, then it's going to open the door to a much greater amount of spending in the coming months. That will involve both higher inflation and greater debt issuance by the United States, which is going to make it more expensive for the United States to finance its debt payments simultaneously, it's going to make the Fed's job that much harder to try to tamp down inflation. And that all puts pressure on bonds. Bond yields are the basis of where risk assets are valued, and that suggests that the stock market would have trouble going forward. We also find that most of the stock market, specifically the S&P 500, is not participating in this rally. The rally is being driven by a handful of companies, which are all related to a narrative that everyone's openly admitting is a bubble. So that's the situation we're in today. A lot of risks to consider. Doesn't mean that we can't be playing this thing, but it just means you need to be extra careful and extra nimble. I'm Graham Summers, and this is Bulls, Bears, and BS.